Good morning. Great to see you. Thank you so much to the guys this morning for worship and Martin for um, leading communion for us today. Um, how, how are your brains today? Adult. <laughs> are they switched on? Um, it's going to be a little, a little bit meaty today, so just do some quick mental maths or something. Wait, you, wait yourself up. Um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive straight in, actually, I think. So if you've got Bibles, uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we are in our series. Martin already mentioned this is week 10. Um, if you're fearful that this is week 10 and we've still got two whole chapters to go, um, don't be. We are going to pick up pace a little bit um, towards the end, I promise. There isn't another 10 weeks of Philippians to go. Um, and actually, I don't want to spend a lot of time in Philippians this morning. I thought I'd give us a little bit of a break. We're going to go into the rest of the Bible. Um, but our passage today is going to provide us with an introduction to the person that I want to spend some time talking about today. So just a very quick recap. Um, last week, we got as far as chapter 2, verse 18. And Paul had just come to the end of this huge chunk of his letter that he's writing, which began in verse 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, sorry, verse 27. And he begins that with this call to unity in the church. He tells the Philippians that they need to stand together in one spirit, to strive together as one, be like-minded, have the same love and the same um, mindset as each other. And he goes on to say that in order to do that, they need to be humble. They need to learn to value others above themselves um, look out to the others of interest first. And then he essentially says, you know, guys, you just need, you need to be like Jesus. Okay? Easy peasy. No problem. And he writes those incredible words reminding the Philippians that Jesus willingly set aside his authority, that he humbled himself, that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he says, now because of that sacrifice, God has raised him up. He's given him the name that is above all names. And so he concludes by telling the Philippians that just like Christ, they are to be obedient, working out what it means to live in the reality of their salvation together, not grumbling or arguing, but living in such a way that the whole world notices there's something different about them. And he says, if you can do it, guys, if you can get a hold of this, then you're going to shine like stars in the sky. So I'm sure you remember all of that from the past five or six weeks. Um, from verse 127 all the way through to 218, it's this one long chain of thought. This morning, however, Paul seems to step away a little bit from this appeal for unity in the church, and he moves on to slightly more practical matters. This is what he writes in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have got no one else like him. He shows genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So Paul's appeal for unity in the church seems to, led him, uh, to have led him in his train of thought to this guy, Timothy, 
who, as we've just read, he's intending to send to the Philippians as soon as he hears what's going on with his trial. So why does Paul want to send Timothy to them? Well, before we can answer that, and that's kind of where I want to come to this morning, um, I think it's important for us to learn a little bit more about who this Timothy was. Now, photos um, from that period in history are really hard to come by, um, (laughs) primarily because they hadn't invented cameras, but I've got an artist rendering for you. I'm sorry that it's so incredibly creepy. (laughs) It's honestly the best I could find. So there's Tim, maybe, I don't know, (laughs) no one knows. Um, Paul has already spoken about Timothy at the start of the letter. You might remember in verse 1, he said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So the first thing we've got to assume is that the Philippians, they know who Timothy was. They'd met him before. And Paul, of course, speaks very highly of him in the few verses we've just read. He mentions four things which paint him in a very positive light. He says, I've got nobody else like him. He's one of a kind. He says he's, he's someone who shows genuine concern for your welfare. He really loves you guys. He said he's proved himself. He has integrity, stickability. He's, he's been around. He's done the work. And he says he's served alongside him in the work of the gospel. So he's heavenly minded. He's out for Jesus and not for himself. And that certainly starts to paint a picture for us. It might not be that picture, but it's a picture. Um, I would like, I wanted to find out a little bit more than that though. So I did a bit of research this week for you. Unfortunately um, for us, Paul's letter to the Philippians is not the only source of information we have about Timothy. Luke speaks about him in Acts in chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Paul talks about him in other letters. He mentions him in his letter to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, and actually he's cited as co-author in 2 Corinthians, just as he is in Philippians, Thessalonians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. The writer to the Hebrews mentions him at the end of their letter. And perhaps most significantly, we have two whole letters in our Bible that are addressed specifically to Timothy, helpfully called 1 and 2 Timothy. (laughs) So it's obvious that Timothy was someone who Paul valued greatly. And as I've said already, the first mention that we have in our Bibles is found in Acts chapter 16. If you want to flick there, please do. We'll be spending a little bit of time camped out in Acts 16 this morning. You might recall Acts 16 is actually the chapter in which Paul establishes the church in Philippi. It's where we first find out about this place and Paul's work there. But before he arrived in Philippi, Paul did a little stop at a city called Lystra. Here it is on a map. I thought I'd give you the whole world and then, and then you can see <laughs> if you squint. Uh, it's now part of Turkey, but in Paul's day it was part of the Roman province of Galatia. And much like Philippi, Lystra was a Roman colony, home to many Roman soldiers who looked after the city. And we're told, actually, that there are two occasions that Paul visits Lystra. The first is recorded in Acts 14, where Paul heals a man who'd been lame from birth, and then the residents mistake him as the Greek god Hermes, and they try to worship him, and it's all a bit of a mess. Um, And the second occasion is here in Acts 16, where we're introduced to Timothy, who lived in the city. 
Acts 16.1 says this, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Now, we actually find out from Paul's second letter to Timothy that Paul knew both his mother and his grandmother. His grandmother was called Lois and his mother was called Eunice. And Paul describes both of them as having a sincere faith. As for Timothy's father, we don't find out anything really other than what's written here in Acts 16, that he was Greek. But if we read between the lines a little bit, it seems as though Timothy's father was not around much or perhaps even at all. Paul attributes Timothy's faith to the influence of his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. It seems likely that they raised him. And another fact that gives credence to this idea is that Paul often refers to Timothy as my son, or my son in the faith. As he talks to the Philippians about him, he uses that father-son dynamic to explain their relationship. And it's as though almost that there's been some kind of spiritual adoption that's taken place between Paul and Timothy. Of course, in those days, children often followed in their father's footsteps. They went into the business when they reached a certain age. But we don't see Timothy following his biological father's footsteps. We see him following Paul's. And I sort of, I've sort of fallen in love with this idea that Paul had taken Timothy under his wing, sort of adopted him as a spiritual son. Because, you know, one of Paul's main metaphors for the church, apart from it being the body of Christ, as we spoke about last week, is that it's a family unit together. In fact, one of the ways he encourages Timothy in his first letter is to treat other believers in the church as though they were family. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And of course, today people come from all sorts of family setups. We've got two parents, single parents, grandparents, different parents at the weekend. Some have lost family members through tragedy or illness or disagreement. Others have needed to walk away from family for various reasons. But I think one of the most beautiful things about church is that it provides us with those missing pieces. Spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and grandmothers and grandfathers, if you're above a certain age. I'll let you decide. People that we can rely upon, people that we can call upon when times are tough, hang out with, encourage, teach, exhort. And you know, as I was reflecting on this this week, I couldn't help be reminded of the many, many young people, children and teenagers in this community that are crying out for spiritual parents. You won't necessarily see them here on a Sunday morning, but they turn up in the week in our various clubs and ministry. And you know, honestly, their biggest need is just for people to come alongside them, to love them, to support them, to help them see that they matter to us, that they matter to God. And if you've never considered working with the children or youth in this community and you have time, please would you just pray about it this week? Speak to Amy and Brenda if you've got availability because there is so much need. But even in the context of a Sunday morning, you know, you can make a difference. As you see our children and our teenagers, those in the church, would you speak to them? Would you encourage them? I know it's really hard with some of the teenagers because 
They have a face like a slapped ass. But, you know, they can't help that. It's just their hormones. They're forced to look that way. But, you know, just do me a favor and tell them that they're loved. Tell them that they're valuable. Tell them that you're really, really pleased that they're here. And that they're a part of this, this community, this church. Because they forget sometimes. I think it's all that teenage angst just takes over. And we can encourage each other in that way. And you know, this was the situation for Timothy as well. He needed a spiritual father. He needed someone that would encourage him in the right way. And Paul steps in to fill that gap. We're also told um, in Acts 16 that the believers um, in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. He had a, a good reputation. We also know from Paul's letters that he was young. We don't know how young exactly, maybe a teenager, maybe 20s, maybe 30s. That's probably me being wishful thinking. But Paul saw it as his duty to encourage him as he grew in age and in spiritual maturity as well. And he wrote things to him like this. He said, don't look any, let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. He said, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And you can really hear the, the fatherly tone of Paul in these words, can't you? Now, Tim, me lad, you stay away from them ruffians, hey? Keep your nose clean, get your head down, stay with the Lord. Come on, son, you can do it. And all of that. And what I love... What I love about this is that Paul, he never sees Timothy's age as a barrier. He gives him opportunities to lead in spite of his age and in spite of his inexperience. In life group um, this week, I was reminiscing. I've reached an age where I like to reminisce, believe it or not. And um, we, I was talking about the honour, the honour of being chosen to change the acetate on the OHP drone worship, <laughs> right? You remember these overhead projectors? I didn't grow up in this church um, as a child, but I assume you must have had one of these. But even if you didn't grow up in a church, I imagine school assemblies, these will be familiar things. It's essentially what we had before projectors and laptops. And you'd have a clear sheet of acetate um, with words on. And as the, the worship leader changed songs, you had to put the, the new acetate on. And it was quite an easy job unless the worship leader decided he was going a different way. And then you'd have to fiddle through the box until you found the right one. Essentially, it was sort of the forerunner to USB sticks because you always got them on the wrong way around first time. And you had to quickly flick it over before anyone noticed. Well, I'm telling you, you might not believe me, but it was a great honour to be chosen to do the acetate. That was a special morning. You, felt, you walked out with your head held high. And I was, um, I was very fortunate in the church that I grew up in because I was given lots of opportunities to serve, not, not just with the OHPs, um, but in different ways as well. I remember um, as a teenager, I was given a responsibility for running a children's club for an evening service we used to do over in Piccadilly in Kingsbury. Um, it was me and uh, Simon who's sitting there. And we would uh, rock up about an hour or so before the service on the field and a bunch of the kids would run out from the estate to meet us and we would just play silly games with them and we'd chat to them for the hour and uh, a few of them would stay for the service, the evening service afterwards. And I remember over the years that we did this club with them, a couple of them um, came to faith. 
And it wasn't really through the games or um, the chats that we had with them, but those were the relationships started. And I can just remember this overwhelming sense of pride that I had been instrumental in some small way in these kids coming to faith. And actually, it was in that place that I first sensed a calling into ministry as a teenager. And honestly, as I look back, it's simply because someone gave me an opportunity to do something. Was I ready? No. <laughs> was it a good club? Not really. Actually, some of the games we played were really dangerous. Do you remember, Simon? <laughs> I'm surprised more kids didn't get hurt. But you know, the fact that someone trusted me with an opportunity meant that my faith went from like here up to here. And, you know, I just want to encourage you this morning, if you're leading something in this church, whether it's a life group or a ministry of some sort, would you just consider this week what opportunities you can create for others, whether they're young or old? Because you never know what someone might discover about themselves when they're given the opportunity to lead. Even if they don't seem that sure of themselves, even if they're perhaps on paper not the ideal candidate, because, you know, that's another really interesting thing about Timothy that I found out this week. You know, this kid, he had a few issues. On the surface, he wasn't really someone that you would say was the ideal candidate to follow in Paul's footsteps. First of all, he was kind of sickly. He got ill a lot. Paul writes to him at the end of his first letter, he says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and frequent illnesses. That's some good advice, dad advice there, isn't it? Go on, son, have a bit of wine, that'll sort you out. Now, I'm not a doctor, but um, I've done a little bit of research, and apparently there are quite a lot of studies which suggest that wine, and red wine in particular, does you good. It lowers the risk of heart attacks, dementia, strokes, and I even found one about the common cold. So there you go. Before you start bringing all your hip flasks to church, just point out it says a little wine. A lot of wine will most certainly have the opposite effect. Um, also, Paul doesn't mention anything about beer, more's the pity. Um, so Timothy got, he got ill quite a bit, and also, reading between the lines, it appears he had something of a, of a nervous disposition. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he tells them, when Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. You know, don't scare the poor fella, will you? you know, look after him, treat him nicely, something again of Paul's fatherly heart. And again, in Paul's second letter, he says, The Spirit of God does not make us timid. He gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And I imagine as Timothy grew up in Lystra, all his mates would tease him and call him Timid Timothy. And Paul's like, come on, Tim. There's no need to be afraid. God's in you now. You've got his spirit. You can do this. And I just, I love finding things out like this about the men and women in our Bible because so often at first glance, they can appear superhuman, can't they? And it's, you know, we think, well, it's all right for them. They were perfect, you know. It was a different time, you know. They had it all sorted. God's not going to use me because I've got this problem or that problem or this issue or that hang-up or this thing that's happened in my life. You know, I'm just really shy or I'm just not confident or, you know, just, it's not going to happen for me. But, you know, it's not true. It's not true. We're looking at Timothy this morning, but just listen to some of the other issues great Bible characters had. Unlike Timothy, Noah liked his wine a bit too much. He got so drunk, he passed out naked. Abraham didn't think he was too young, young, but rather too old. Jacob and Isaac were both liars. 
Joseph was a victim of abuse. Moses had a speech problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. King David, you know, that great king of Israel, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah literally wandered around naked for three years. All right? If you don't believe me, check out Isaiah 20. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was bitter. Peter, Pete, you remember Pete, the rock? The rock, Peter. He denied even knowing Jesus. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced like more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Lazarus was dead. You know? But God used them all. He used all of them. Paul often spoke of his imperfections. He said in his letter to the Romans, I don't understand myself. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And here's Timothy, single parent family, young, timid, sickly, and yet living his life for God in such a way that Paul says, I can use you. I can send you to the Philippians. God's going to do great things in your life. So please, would you take heart this morning, despite all of your flaws, despite all of my flaws, God can and will use us because that's what he delights in doing. Honestly, 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So he does. And this is what he does with Timothy in all sorts of ways. Timothy continues the work in Berea when Paul is forced to leave. He goes to Thessalonica to strengthen the believers. He's sent from Macedonia to Ephesus with a similar mission. Paul sends him as an emissary to the church that had a love affair with problems. Remember that one? We looked at it last two years. He accompanies Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem and now during his imprisonment here in Rome, he's with him again and he's about to send him off to Philippi. So why is he sending him? We've come back round to the question. I've spent a bit of time this morning talking about Timothy's flaws. So I just quickly want to tell you three of the positive traits that Timothy had. Three of the attitudes that Timothy had that meant God could use him despite the issues. Firstly, sorry, creepy, Timothy's back. Um, firstly, he was willing to serve no matter the cost. Remember, Paul wants the Philippians to learn what it means to serve each other. And Timothy is just this incredible example of that for them. And actually, you know, we get a glimpse of Timothy's servant heart in that first meeting between him and Paul. If we return to Acts 16 again for a moment, it says in verse 3 that Paul wanted to take him, that's Timothy, along on the journey. So he circumcised him. Because the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. You know, sometimes I just really wish they'd included conversations that happened in the Bible. Because, you know, I think this one would have been magical. (laughs) Can I tell you how I imagine it went? Okay, Paul. Timothy! It's great to meet you. The name's Paul. Uh, I'm a friend of your your mother's and your grandmother's, actually. Timothy. Okay. (laughs) 
Paul, listen, you know, I've been hearing some wonderful things about you. I was chatting to some folk from Iconium this morning, and they said, you know, Timothy, he's someone who just really loves Jesus. He's really passionate about him. Timothy, thanks. Yeah, I do. Paul, I'm on a mission, actually. You know, I'm going from town to town. I'm telling people about Jesus. You know, it's, it's really exciting, and I'd just love it if you want to come with me. I know you're young, but I've had a chat to your mum. She signed this permission slip, and I think you've got, like, loads to give. So, you know, you should come. What do you think? Tim? Yeah, sure. Sounds great. I've, I've always wanted to travel. Paul? Brilliant. Just uh, drop your trousers for a second. <laughs> Tim? What? <laughs> Paul, you know, I'm just going to, you know, straight up. I've, I've done it with babies. I imagine it'll be easier with you, so two seconds. Tim, now backing away. Uh, Mom! <laughs> and scene. <laughs> thank, thank you for indulging me. It's that failed acting career coming through again. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strange story, isn't it? I'll admit, it's weird. Um, and to be clear, Paul doesn't believe that circumcision is necessary for salvation. But some of the Jewish believers did. And in fact, if you read in the previous chapter in Acts, Acts 15, you can see that the, the church needed to call a council at church headquarters in Jerusalem to figure this whole thing out. It was sort of a, a hot-button issue of the day. And mercifully, the conclusion of that council was that non-Jewish believers don't need to be circumcised. And Paul himself fought for that. In fact, later on, um, you see him defending the rights of one of his other traveling companions not to be circumcised, a guy uh, called Titus. So why did poor old Timothy get the chop? Well, very simply, the answer is that Timothy was already Jewish because of his mother and his grandmother. Clearly, his Greek father had not wanted him circumcised at birth, but doing it now legitimized his Jewish heritage and put him in the best possible position to reach the Jewish people in that position. It meant that he could go into the synagogues and preach and tell people about Jesus. And Paul himself says, you know, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. Which is a very complicated way of saying I'm willing to do whatever it takes to tell other people about Jesus. And Timothy, it turns out, was also willing And if you'll excuse the pun, this little sacrifice on day one led to much bigger sacrifices later on. At the end of the letter to the Hebrews, the writer mentions, almost in passing, that Timothy has been released from jail. And undoubtedly, like his spiritual father Paul, he went to jail because of the gospel. He was willing to sacrifice. Second positive trait that we see in Timothy is his desire to keep making progress. As I um, read through Paul's two letters to Timothy this week, I noticed that there were primarily there were two ways in which Paul encourages Timothy to make progress. Firstly, he's always telling Timothy to keep working on his faith. Keep it fresh. Keep reminding yourself of what you know. Keep it at the forefront of your mind. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Train at it. Work at it. Some of that spiritual training we were talking about last week. 
2 Timothy 1.6, he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Keep growing in your gifts. Fan it into flames. Don't let it go out. 2 Timothy 1.13, he says, What you um, heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Remind yourself of what you ought to know. Stay on the straight and narrow. And he says the same in 2 Timothy 3.14. Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know from those whom you learned it. Keep working on your faith. The second way Paul encourages Timothy to progress is to keep giving his faith away. He says in 2 Timothy 2.14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. 2 Timothy 2.25, he says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. Be prepared in and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so departed from the faith. Look after those in your care, Timothy. Teach them well, instruct them in the right way. Keep working on your faith and then put your faith in action and give it away to others. He says, that's how you progress, Timothy. That's how you move on in your faith. That's how you mature in your faith. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. As you take in and as you give out, everyone benefits. But you've got to get the balance right. It's all about that balance. I recently um, went a little bit mental and uh, bought a hot tub. Not one of the uh, thousands of pounds ones, one of the sort of cheapish inflatable ones. And my hope was that it would sit in the garden and when we have a, a nice evening, Sean and I could go and relax and have some of that wine that Paul was speaking about earlier. But what I've um, quickly come to realise is that looking after a big tub of water takes a surprising amount of effort. Because, you know, if you just leave it there, it goes bad. It starts to smell and gets all cloudy and grainy. And so you sort of have to check the pH balance every day. You have to add chlorine. You have to change the filter once a week. Because you know, water's got to flow through it to be cleaned. And it's basically a massive pain. Don't, <laughs> don't invest. <laughs> but, you know, it reminds me of Timothy and his instructions from Paul to watch his life and doctrine closely, not to become complacent, to be careful about how much he was taking in and how much he was giving out. Are you taking in too much and not giving out and going stagnant? Or are you giving out too much and therefore drying up? You've got to get that balance right. And it's a good question to ask ourselves. Are we taking in as much as we are giving out? Or have we gone like my hot tub, a bit cloudy? Um, Who are we pouring our lives into? And who is pouring their life into us? Really good question to reflect on this morning. The last positive trait of Timothy I want to quickly mention. I'm aware we're running out of time this morning. But this one I want to talk about because it brings us back to Philippians. um, Full circle. Paul pays in that wonderful compliment, doesn't he? He says, I've no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy had learned how to cultivate a genuine love for people. He wasn't 
uh, self-absorbed. He didn't have a hidden agenda. He really cared about those he ministered to. You know, when Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter, he's mostly instructing him on how to deal with issues that are occurring in Ephesus at the time. And he's really clear about what his motivation should be. This is what he says. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. He says the goal of this command, Timothy, the goal of the command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul knew that unless Timothy learned to love people, from the bottom of his heart, to show them that his motives were true, he was never going to make any impact on their lives. The 26th president of America, Theodore Roosevelt, once said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It's true, they don't. So how do you show people that you care? Well, this is where we come full circle, because genuine care looks like a selfless attitude. It looks like putting others ahead of ourselves. It looks like being humble. It looks like all of the things that Paul has been talking about since chapter 1, verse 27. Did you notice he just slips it in there? At the end, after he says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, he just adds, for everyone looks to their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Paul sends Timothy to the Philippians because he knows that um, Timothy will be an example to them of what selfless love looks like. He'll show them how to live selflessly. So there we have it. Um, When I sort of finished my research this week on that, I I looked down and I sort of had about a 12-point sermon worked out, so I thought I'd better condense it down a little bit. Maybe we'll do a series on Timothy at some point um, in the future. But just a couple of things to reflect on. This morning, I'm aware that I've said a lot and I'll try and leave you with something. Firstly, Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. He took him on adventures. He gave him awesome opportunities. He wrote him encouraging letters. He changed his whole life. This is your church family. Who can you go on adventures with? Who can you give opportunities to? Who can you encourage this morning? If I've learned anything in my very short time in ministry, it's that people, you know, they always need more encouragement than you think they do. Always. And your words, the things that you say to people, they have the power to change lives. You know, just that kind word. I'm glad that you're here. I'm so pleased to see you today. I think you're fantastic. I think the work that you do is brilliant. You know, I think you could do so much more. I see so much in you. Those kinds of words can save a life. People can just be on the brink. I think a lot of us live on the brink more than we admit, actually. And just that little word of encouragement, that little acknowledgement, that little treating someone as a member of the family and not just somebody else who's here, that can really, really make a difference. Secondly, Timothy, he was a young lad from a single parent household. He was constantly ill. He had a nervous disposition. All his mates called him timid Timothy, maybe, reading between the lines. Yet he didn't let any of that stop him from serving God. It didn't hold him back I just wonder if sometimes 
perhaps we make excuses while God is waiting for us to step out in faith. I really, truly, honestly believe that there is nothing in your life, no fault, no failure, no thing that has befallen you, no thing that has happened to you in the past, no defect as you see it that God cannot redeem and use for his purposes. Truly, truly, I believe that. Never devalue yourself because God delights in using us and he delights it when we put our trust in him and say, God, I want you to use me. I don't feel worthwhile, but I trust you. And thirdly and finally, as we think of Timothy's willingness to serve, no matter the cost, his desire to let everyone see his progress and to cultivate a genuine love for people, maybe we should just ask ourselves this week, how are we doing on a scale of one to Timothy, how Tim are we? And those of you that are called Timothy, it doesn't count. This is like half of you here are called Timothy. Which of those areas do we perhaps need to spend some time this week praying into and actioning in our lives? How might we serve each other in love? How might we make practical progress in that area? Do we need to take more in? Do we need to receive more from God in prayer, in study, in word, in encouragement? Or are actually we receiving enough and we need to give out? Or are maybe some of us just giving out too much and we're hanging on and we're exhausted and we need to take in a little bit more? Have we got that balance right in our lives this morning? Do we genuinely love those around us or do we have... A hidden agenda? Do we turn up on a Sunday morning with our own agenda, our own things, I'm here for me and the things that I want to do and the things that I want to sort out? Or are we here because this is our spiritual family and we want to just love those around us in whatever way that we can? There's some things to reflect on this week. I know it's, a, it's been a heavy one. I warned you at the start, didn't I? I should have given you the option to leave, but I didn't. You've heard it now. So... What are you going to do about it? I wonder if the band would come and um, join us. And uh, I'd just love to pray for you guys as we um, close this morning.